We just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to come before you and to worship you. We ask you to bless this time, guide and lead us, and show us what you would have us to see from all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. 2 Samuel chapter 21. We've looked at the time of famine that uh, Israel was existing in and uh, that David asked God why it had happened and it was, it was because Saul had uh, tried to slaughter the Gibeonites and that Saul gave, uh, Samuel gave, uh, Samuel, yeah, David <laughs> uh, turned over seven of Saul's descend, male descendants for them to kill and uh, then he buried, buried those bodies and God took away the, the curse upon the people of Israel. And we talked about how we didn't know what, when that was because we don't think it was at this period of, at the end of David's life, uh, but it was sometime in his, in his rule. And we're at it, these last couple chapters kind of just have mishmashed everything together uh, from David's life. So we're going to look at verse 15. And it says, Moreover, the Philistines had yet war against Israel, and David went, and his servants went with him and fought against the Philistines, and David waxed faint. And Ishbibenob, which was the son, which is of the sons of the giant, the weight of a, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of brass in weight, he being girded with a new sword, thought to have slain David. But Abishai, the son of Zerurai, succored him and smote the Philistine and killed him. And the men of David swore to, unto him, saying, You shall no more go out with us to battle, that you quench not the light of Israel. And it came to pass after this that there was again a battle with the Philistines at, at, at Gob. Then Shibithai, the Hushiite, slew Sath, which was the, of the sons of the giant. And there was again a battle in Gob where the Philistines, with the Philistines, where Elhanan, the son of Jareragim, a Bethlehemite, slew the brother of Goliath, a Gigite, the Gigite, the staff of whose spear was, the, was like a weaver's beam. And there was yet another battle in Gath, and there was a man of great stature that had on every hand six fingers and on every toe six toes, 24 in number, and he was also born of the giant, uh, to the giant. And when he defiled Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, uh, the brother of David, slew him. These men were born of the giant of Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. So we have here a series of battles talking about the descendants of Goliath. All right, when they say... Descendant of the giant, the giant they're referring to is Goliath. So we see here in 15, the first battle that was out there, D David was at battle. We know that this must be when he's getting older because he tires out. I, you know, and war is not a place for older people. Uh, most countries recognize that. You know, they re there's a forced retirement in most military branches. You know, when you get get to be about 50, 55 years old, you are made to retire. You do not get to be a 70 or 80 year old general out there on the field. And we don't know how old David was, but uh, it says that he waxed faint. Uh, and you know, as most older people, and one of the things I'm noticing, uh, I get older and older and my mind says I can do things and my body says, no, you can't. And uh, we see this more and more, and I guess it happens more as we get older, your body, you think you can do things, your body keeps telling you, 
Uh, you're not, you know, you, you may, may think you are 27, but you're really 75. <laughs> you know, settle down, you know. Uh, and I know several years ago, I was out trying to play softball, and I was, I was reaching out for a ball that I knew that I, in my mind, I knew I could catch. I've always been able to catch them all my life, and my body screaming, who do you think you are? Uh, and I haven't really played softball since that day. <laughs> uh, the body was just arguing with me, and this is where I think David's at. David, sure, I can go out there. I'm a soldier. I know what I'm doing. I can, I can win this battle, and he gets tired. And it says that Ishbibonab, the son of a giant, whose weight of a spear weighed 300 shekels of brass. That's a pretty good-sized spear. Uh, and I don't know, was he carrying something that heavy just to show off? You know, I can carry something, or could he really throw 300 shekels worth of uh, 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 weight on there? And I forgot what the shekel was. Shekel's about two pounds each. Yeah, well, on the back of my Bible, it says a shekel is two pounds. So in that case, he's carrying around a 600-pound spear, which sounds awfully heavy. That's too heavy. Eight pounds sounds too light, though, to be an impressive number. Uh, but anyway, somewhere in, you know, somewhere very large spear, and he's carrying it around to... To, to use as a weapon. Um, if it was a lance, 800, you know, 600 pounds wouldn't be too big a deal. Eight pounds would be too light for a lance, but, you know, but he's carrying around something that's pretty heavy, impressive, and, and it's, he's also carrying a new sword and he sees David. Now, this is of the sons of the giant. This means that this man is Goliath's son. He has a vendetta. Here is David. David is obviously weak. And we know what that means. You can tell when somebody's pretty tired and faint. And it says he waxed faint. So David is not just tired. He is obviously tired, uh, probably leaning on, his, leaning on his spear or his you know, sword or something. He's, he's obviously tired. And the giant who has a vendetta against David says, here's my chance to, to avenge my father and probably charges David very quickly. And you can almost picture this. This would make an interesting movie, movie scene or something, you know, the, the old man heavily leaning on his staff or whatever, and the, and the younger attacker coming at him at full, full force. Uh, David's probably ready to defend himself and, and may have been able to defend himself. You know, he's, he's a veteran soldier. Uh, and sometimes veterans, you know, with a lot of skill can get past uh, the, the upstarts. Well, he's also got God on his side. You know, yes, he's got God on his side as well. But you got to remember, let's say David is even in his 40, you know, 30, you know, 50s at this point in time, the, you know, which is fairly old for a warrior. That means Goliath's son's probably still around 30 or 40 years old or maybe a little older, because when he, when Goliath challenged David, he goes, you know, what is this lad attacking me? You know, so even if this, David, Goliath's sons may have been the same age as David. We don't know. But this man is in battle, he's coming in, and it, uh, you can picture this, you, I can picture this battle. You know, this, this is coming in, this giant's, I've got him. 
you know, he, he's too tired, he can't, he can't stand up, and Abishai shows up. Abishai shows up and, and rescues David, and in the process kills a giant. And we see here that Abishai keeps showing up a lot. Abishai seems to be a very good soldier. Remember that he is David's nephew uh, from David's sister, which means he's David's children's age. So he's you know, a generation behind David uh, in, in, most, in most likely. So he's probably you know, a good 15 years or more David's junior. <laughs> And yet he has also been a captain within David's army. All right? We have all, all that group of men that are in David's side and they're generals and captains of the legions. And obviously this, they have seen David waxing very tired and they decide now is the time to come rescue him. And Abishai comes running in from wherever he's, from wherever he's watching David. At least he's close enough to watch David. I don't know if it was his job. Maybe one of them were saying, maybe the generals were saying, uh, David's getting a little tired. It's your job to watch him. At this time, we don't know what's happened to David's 600 men. David always had his men around him all the time, but you've got to remember, they're not young men either. They were following David from all, they may not be in battles anymore from this point because they were always his guard. They were with him and they spent all their time from the early on and have grown with him. So they're, they're also aged. So they may not be in battle anymore. Uh, David may have said, I'm king, I'm going into battle, and was just not ready to be there. But I think it's interesting that the people, after this uh, near-death experience, said, you will not go to battle with us anymore. That's pretty bold to tell the king, you aren't going to battle anymore. All right, but their reason is that you quench not the light of Israel. David, you are more important to us than anybody else. This is exactly what was said when he, went, when he was chased out of Jerusalem and he wanted to defend himself. And they said, no, you can't go because they would go after you rather than us. They, they would not care about us at all. They would go after you. And if we had to run, you would fall behind and and you, you would die and, and it would be worse. And here are the people saying the same thing. And I don't know if this event happened before or after that rebellion, because again, we don't have a time marker here. Uh, I kind of have a feeling it might be after the rebellion because the people are already telling David, you're not going to war. Uh, or the rebellion might have happened after this one, said, David, no, you're not going to war. We know it's your kingdom, but you, we already know what war's done to you. You almost lost your life to the giant. We're not going to let you lose your life to this younger, younger upstart. But regardless, the people are telling David, David, it's time to just relax and let others take the lead. And you know, one of the hardest things for even us as Christians is to be able to let others take over at times. Um, and, you know, there is a time when people have to just sit back and not totally retire from all activity with God, but be able to say, now it's time for others to step forward. Uh, met a pastor a couple months ago. It's very obvious he should be retiring. He, he has no strength. He can't even hardly preach and teach. And, and 
and when you do listen to him, he's, he's all over the place, scattered, remembering things, and it's like, okay, it's time for you to let somebody else take over. But the hardest thing for anybody who's older is to give up and give up what God has called them. And it's hard. It's very hard when you're looking at, God has asked me to do this to be able to sit, step back and let others and be their advisor, help them, help them get organized. Again, that doesn't mean that we stop. No place in the Bible does it ever talk about retirement, except for the priests. They were to retire at age 50. But then if you read carefully what it says, they were not to totally retire and do nothing. They were to train up the other, the other priests. They were to be their advisors, helpers, and directors. And this is something that is hard. It is hard in our world to, to step back. And what I see normally is when people do successfully step back, they step back all the way <laughs> and don't do anything. And that's not, that's not good for us. And this is something that's very important. We see here David's thinking, I've got to go out. I've got to still be a general. I've got to go lead my people. And the people are telling him, no, David, you're so important. You, you learn to stay back. We don't want to see you die out here in the battle. And this is something that we, the older people need to learn, take, take back and step back once in a while. And I've not been there yet. I'm not old enough to really be thinking about stepping back. But there no, I know there will be a day when I have to step back and let others do the bulk of the teaching, do, let others do the bulk of the leading, and then advise and help. I hope they're still 20 or 30 years away, but who knows what, who knows what will happen. And I think the hardest thing, because I've watched, I've watched it with family members and everything. You, know, you watch family members that have to give up their licenses. And, you know, it's... And I don't know that I would ever be ready for that. I've been driving since I was 15 and a half. I don't want to stop driving and have to depend on other people. But yet the same token, if I get to the place where I can't see well enough to drive and I'm going to kill somebody, I don't want to be driving either. And so there is that point where we have to step back and say, I have to do this. And I've seen pastors, you know, one of the, one of the greatest pastors, teaching pastors I ever have ever known had trouble at the end of his you know for the last couple of years of his life because he was starting to suffer from Alzheimer's and everything and he kept trying to preach and it wasn't it wasn't good and he needed to step down and just would not step down and this is something we have to be careful David's not willing to step down and his people are going to make him step down David you are not going to battle with us we are not going to lose you through your stubbornness and I think picture David was probably pretty stubborn. He's been fighting since he was young. Because right after he battled against Goliath, he was brought into the military, and he became a general at a very young age and had been a, a warrior for all of his life, literally all of his life, for at least 40, 50 years before whatever, whatever they finally said, David, you're going to go sit down and not fight anymore. And... At this point, he now has to send people to battle without him going out with them. And this is a tough, tough thing for David. And so we have a son of Goliath defeated. And then in verse 18, it says, It came to pass after this that there was again a battle with the Philistines at, at, at Gob, and Sebethkai, the Hushite, slew Sath, who was of the sons of the giant. So here's a second son of Goliath. 
And this, now, this one's not really described as how big he is, but he's, he is definitely probably larger than the average soldier because he is the son of Goliath. And remember, Goliath was only a mere nine, inch, uh, nine feet six inches tall, just, just a small guy. Uh, uh, and in, so this one is killed by another, another one of David's men. And then in verse 19, and there was again a battle in, in Nob with the Philistines where Elhanah, the son of Jehorogim, the Bethlehemite, slew the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the staff of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. So uh, Goliath's brother was no small guy either. If you've ever seen a weaver's beam, you know that this was not a lightweight, uh, lightweight thing. And his, his, the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam. For somebody to be able to use that as a spear, a weaver's beam is a pretty big deal. This guy has to be a pretty big, strong man. I would say at least the same height as, as Goliath was somewhere in that, in that ballpark. And... It seems like the Philistines are full of giants. <laughs> the, the, Phil, the Philistia has at least one family full of giants that are all warriors. Uh, as we go through this, and there was yet another battle in Gath, and there was a man of great stature who had on every hand six fingers and six toes, 24 in number, and who was born of the giants. And when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, the brother of David, slew him. David's family is getting a little bit of renown here uh, in the battle. Uh, David is from Bethlehem, so that means he is also related to Elanan because he's from that one family, and everybody in Bethlehem would have been related. So we have four members of Goliath's family that are being killed. There are many people, and I kind of have said the same thing with myself. When David went to fight Goliath, he picked up five stones out of the, out of the stream. Many people, including myself, believe he was ready to, to battle Goliath's brothers and, and family so that if they decided to try to retaliate, that, it, that he would get them. And that's no proof on it, but you know, it's said, you know, a lot of people have said that because they had four other relatives that he was ready to kill. He wasn't going to just kill one giant. He was ready to kill five giants. And I don't know whether that's true or not. It's, it makes some sense to me. I think David was very confident that he was going to kill the giant with one stone. Uh, because he was bold. You remember the story of Goliath. You know, Goliath's going, what is this that you send a lad out? You know, am I a dog that you've sent a, a lad out here with a stick? Because David went out with the staff. Goliath, though, never saw the sling in David's hand. And David was a marksman with that sling and was able to take Goliath, uh, put the stone right in between Goliath's eyes and drop him. And then actually killed him with the sword. With, by cutting his head off. David was a man that uh, apparently has enjoyed battle, even from a child, from a youth. You don't go running up to the giant, cut his head off, and hold his head up without, you know, without having some joy. You, know, it's almost, you can almost picture David having a bloodlust. And David is going to be told later on that he wants to build the temple when we finally get to Chronicles, he's going to be told, he wants to tell God, I want to build your, a temple for you. And God's going to say, no, you can't because you're a man of blood. And I really believe that that statement was more not, not just that he was a warrior, 
but that he was a man who enjoyed the battle. He wasn't just a man who went out and, and fought, and you see it in Goliath. He, he was enjoying that battle. I, I am victorious. I've got, <laughs> I've got this as he holds the head up. Um, and so they, we see here six or five different members of the family, Goliath and his four, four re- relatives, all killed by Israel. Israel's getting a reputation of killing giants. <laughs> and they've always had that reputation. They've always been able to win battles they're not supposed to win. And all through the biblical times and all through current history, they win battles they're not supposed to win. They get the giants coming against them, and they win. The biggest battle they're going to face is in Armageddon when God delivers for them, where the whole world comes together and God steps in and says, okay, I get to kill the giant this time. (laughs) And he kills the entire world's army against them. But they hold out for seven years also against the Antichrist. They're going to hold for seven years against the Antichrist and three and a half of extreme battle, and God protects them against the, the most greatest giant they'll ever face, the, the embodiment of Satan coming against them. And they're going to stand against that giant in the end times. You know, and this is something for us, even as Christians, you know, none of these guys should have ever beat a giant. You know, it just doesn't, doesn't make a lot of sense. But God gives us strength. God is the one that delivers us. In our battles, when we face giants in our own life, it's God that will deliver us. And anytime we think it's us, we're going to get defeated by the giant. We think we're strong enough to take that giant out, we're going to find out we're not. And God says, I'm the one. I'm the one that's going to protect. And it's been interesting in my lifetime as I've watched things come and go in my life and other Christians' lives, and you just trust God, and you watch what God does. I love, I love watching God work when I get, when I get uh, patient enough to let him work. <laughs> Unfortunately, I also step in way too many times, but often there have been many times where I just step back and say, God, I can't deal with this. I'm going to watch what you do. And it's amazing the things that God will do to fix issues, to make things happen. As you go forward and you say, what's going on? And God says, here I am. You know, God, how am I going to meet this, this issue? How am I going to pay this bill? What am I gonna, how am I going to do this? How am I going to do that? And God says, oh, okay, you're, you're waiting for me? And he steps in. He steps in and provides. He steps in and takes care of us. You know, finances have been a big thing when I've, you know, I loved it during the time when I was walking by faith before I had my second job and just watching. All right. And I had an agreement with God. I go, God, I I can get a good job tomorrow by going back to the restaurants. I won't be a pastor anymore, but I can get a good job, God. So as soon as I can't pay my bills, I go get a good job. God always paid my bills. Now that meant I had to work a lot. God put jobs in my path oftentimes. Sometimes they were just gifts. But God blessed in special ways, and watching him work was fantastic. It was great watching him. When it's time to go witness to people, and you say, God, just put me in the path of the right person. And all of a sudden, just the right person comes around, and you have a wonderful opportunity to share the gospel. God, what would you like me to do today? And we just prepare. You know, I love it. I love watching how God works. 
I love watching how God takes and ministers through the word when I'm reading my Bible schedule and it's just what I need for that day. And whatever I read or sitting in the car, driving to work, listening to a message and it, the message just hits and it's just what I need to hear for that day. God has so much in plan for us that it's an amazing thing. I love that God's timing is perfect. When I can get my timing out of the way to let his timing work, it works just fine. And you just say, God, thank you. Look at what, look at what, you're, what you've got in place. Look at what you are prepared for me to do. And we look at this going on and saying, David is protected. And David's men make great renown. And David's family is making great renown. Uh, Abishai, his nephew, makes a, makes a, uh, kills a giant. Uh, you know, his fellow, fellow uh, family person from Bethlehem kills a giant. His, son, his brother's son kills a giant. His family is getting a lot of renown as fighters. Uh, and it's kind of an interesting thing when we, were, when we look at this. And in verse 22 says, And these four were born to the giant in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. So they, they talk about the giants of Gath. And I don't know how many other giants there were. I don't know anything about this. We know there were five. Somewhere don't they talk about a race of giants? <laughs> um, they, we talk about the, the Nephilites, which were before the, before the, uh, deluge, the Noetic deluge. Uh, Nephilite literally means valiant ones. Valiant ones are warriors. There is a school of thought that say they were giants. Uh, if that was the only giants there were, then we couldn't have had the giants of Gath afterwards because that race would have been wiped out. Uh, from that, people give a whole number of other doctrines and thoughts. Uh, Nephilites are valiant ones and, and, and bloodthirsty ones in, in, in some people's definitions. And anybody without Christ, you know, not, or not following God, would be somebody who is going to be valiant and killers and that type of thing. So I believe that before the flood, you had two races of people, basically. You had the ones following God and the ones that were not following God. Um, true race, by the way, that we would divide race by scripture. Uh, so that we see this process going on that the ones who were not following God became very violent, very, very obsessed with doing what they wanted. And then we had a very small group of people, you know, seems how Noah was the only one of that group that followed God. So we have that process going on. Right. And so this is, this is the question. Uh, there are, there are a lot of people who believe that that was a, a line that mixed with angels and, and ended up being a human half breed and ended up being gi giants and all of that. I don't, I don't buy that because Genesis tells us that everything reproduces after its kind. And Jesus very clearly told us that angels not are, and humans are not of the same kind, and that they do not angels do not interbreed. That and so men and, and we as humans do not become angels, so we are not the same kind. So therefore, angels and humans could not interbreed. It's still interesting though that even though after Noah, 
Well, we do know that one thing, even, even in our history that we know, when food is extremely prevalent, humans get larger and larger and taller and taller because we have been getting taller overall compared to 100, 200 years ago. If you go back east and look at the beds on these old colonial homes, most of the beds are barely five foot tall. And they were comfortable to the people, which meant that those people didn't reach five foot tall in, gen in, in their general uh, stature. We're, we're having basketball players that are hitting seven and a half, eight feet, you know, so. But we are seeing just that right now. As, as food is becoming more prevalent, we're seeing height and weight both gain. And when food is scarce, we see the, the stature dropping. And it's been historical. We've seen it. We've seen it. The great kingdoms have come along and, you know, food is, is prevalent and everything. Then we, we read the statue, statures getting, getting larger. Food was probably prevalent in that area, produced, produced a, a, a race of giants that, you know, not giant by, you know, fairy tale st you know, status, but just guys that were bigger than everybody else. And, you know, we do have every once in a while, you, you get George Washington, you know, was heads and, head and shoulder above every, everybody else. He was a stature of a man, you know, almost a giant of a man in his day. Uh, he could not sleep in the normal beds. <laughs> So that's why every, every place back east that says George Washington slept here is probably lying because they didn't have a big enough bed for him to have slept there. <laughs> yeah, because he was a tall man. A tall man. So we still have it. The genetics are there for for a larger, larger body if there's enough, you know, uh, food and and line line up. So we had it here. This whole family, whatever made them big. Yeah, uh, you know, they're, they're, you know what, what was in their water, what was in their food, you know, uh, how big was mom and dad? <laughs> you know, because I've always felt that same way. In, in my family, on my dad's side, I am, I am average height. Even at 6'1", I am of average height in that family. We have great volleyball games because everybody's big. Uh, and yet, most of the places, I'm much taller than, than a lot of people. So... We have a family here that's tall, you know, taller than the average. <laughs> uh, and I don't know if Goliath was bigger because none of these guys, they tell us their, their height. But we are, we are told that a couple of them had, you know, spears the size of a weaver's beam. That's, you know, that's pretty significant height. You have to be a pretty big person to use a, a spear that large. So this is, this is our ending battles of David, just a summary of what was coming up. All right, chapter 22. And David spoke unto the Lord the words of the song in the day that the Lord had delivered him out of the hand of, the of all of his enemies and out of the hand of Saul. And he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. The Lord, the God of my rock, in him will I trust. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my high tower and my refuge, my savior. You saved me from violence. You call, I called on the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. When the waves of the, of the depth compassed me and the floods of ungodly men made me afraid, the sorrows of hell compassed about me, the snares of death prevented me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and, 
and cried unto my God, and he did hear my voice out of his temple, and my cry did enter into his ears. Then the earth shook and trembled, and the foundations of heaven moved and shook, and because he was wroth. And there went up a smoke from out of his nostrils, and fire out of his mouth devoured, and coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also, and came down, and darkness was under his feet. He rode upon the cherubim, cherub, and did fly, and he was seen on the wings of the, of the wind, and he made dark, darkness pavilions around him, dark waters and thick clouds in the sky. Through the brightness before him were coals of fire kindled. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his face. And he sent out arrows and scattered them, lighting and discomforting them. And the channels of the sea appeared, and the fountains of the earth world were discovered at the rebuking of the Lord, at the blast of his breath of his nostrils. He sent from above and took me, and he drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemies, and from them that hated me, for they were too strong for me, and they prevailed, they prevented me in the day of my calamity, but God was my stay. And I'm going to stop there because this, his song goes on for the entire 50 verses. Uh, how far does this song go? <laughs> yeah, 50 verses. So we're going to stop there. Because we're not going to cover 50 verses in one, in one uh, half hour period. So David is ready to sing a song. He has been delivered. This is somewhere toward the end of his time, as a, time of life. He has been delivered from all of his enemies and out of the hand of Saul. And he starts out in verse 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. These are very strong words that he's using. Rock, foundation, very firm foundation. And I love that God is our rock. When we're standing on him, there is nothing that can shake us. There is nothing that can, can destroy, you know, destroy us underneath us. It says, my fortress and David is a warrior. He knows the value of a fortress. And my deliverer. And I like this. I love this term. A good fortress is going to be built on the rock. And the fortress is something you hide in. And I really need us to understand as Christians, our job is not to go running out into battle every time it comes up. Our job is to hide in Christ. And let him win the battles. We need to rest in faith. Faith, rest. All I do is rest in God, and I get to watch him fight the battles. When I go stepping out to, to witness to people, yes, I have a plan. I know, I know things to say. I know how to say. I know how to start. But you know, one of the things I've learned over the years is very rarely do I follow those plans that I have learned. I start speaking. I start following the plan, and they're a good starting place. And then the next thing I know... I'm stepping back, listening to God speak and wondering where is this going and listening to what's happening because God is all of a sudden stepping forth. And this is the good thing for us as Christians. We step out to serve and then God steps in to complete the work because we cannot lead anybody to Christ. It is the Holy Spirit that leads them to Christ. We can say words, we, can, we, we speak the words, we can be the example, but it's the Holy Spirit that works upon them to draw them. 
And all we can really do is plant seeds here and there and, and popping pop in. And every once in a while, we get the privilege of being the last person to talk to them and draw them to Christ. More often than not, our, our job is just to put in seeds. Here's a seed, here's a seed, here's, here's a little bit of water on that seed. And then if we're really fortunate, we get to be the person who's the 10th or 20th person, the 100th person to talk to them, and then and finally up pops the plant, and we just get to be the one that is there when that happens. God is our rock. He's our foundation. He's our fortress, and he delivers. He is the one that goes to battle. And we need to learn more often than not just to step back and say, God, I'm going to wait on you. Because I know one thing for sure, when I step into the fray and try to do it myself, I always make a mess out of things. It doesn't matter. If I try to defend myself, I make a mess out of it. If I try to push somebody to, to make, a, make a decision, you know, because I'm smart and I can, get, I can answer all their questions, I will drive them further away, at least temporarily. You know, we need to just rest in God. He's our fortress. He will deliver. And this is hard. It is hard to just back off and just let God. And a lot of people will go, well, well, how do you do that? Well, you just surrender and just sit back. It's not really that hard. One of, one of the things I have learned over the years is I still do to a degree, but I used to struggle real hard against God and, and trying to do things my way. Do things my way, do things my way, do things my way. It has been so much fun as I, because usually when I would do that, I would struggle for a long period of time and I'd finally give up. And it was amazing how fast God would work. All right, God, I give up. And I've shared with you, I had one event where I struggled with God and fought for my way of doing things for six years. And that was the one time I remember saying, God, I give up. And I didn't actually hear a voice, but he spoke clearly to my heart. It's about time. You know, six years, and God says it's about time. And he was making life miserable for me. And because I was the husband and father, it was being made miserable for my family because I was being stubborn for six years. I've been getting better at giving up faster. I still don't give up instantly like I should. <laughs> I don't know that I ever will. But you know, I'm learning. I'm learning to let God be the defense. And I'm getting better at turning it over to God and watching how he delivers, how he makes changes. And it's a lot of fun watching him do the, do the hard lifting. And just then I get the reward. You know. And same thing for each one of us. If we just learn to surrender to him, God does all the work, and then we get the reward. And it's an amazing, amazing thing to do. We, look at, we listen to some of these evangelists, and if you listen to these evangelists, they'll all tell you that it's God. And they're not just being humble. You know, they are being humble, but they're not just being humble because they know that what's going on is not them. If you listen to Billy Graham's testimony before he passed away, he was always just so humbled that he was able to preach. And not just preach, but be able to talk to these great leaders around the world and give them the gospel message. And he always was like, who am I to do this? Because he always just thought of himself as a, the country boy that, that uh, was called to, to share God's word. He never thought of, of himself as anything special. 
And this is the way that true following of God is. We're just human beings that God gets to use. You know, there's nothing really special about any of us. We all have gifts that he's given us. We all have talents that he's given us. But even the greatest genius when compared to God is nothing. The strongest person is nothing when compared to God. And if we really start thinking about ourselves in our place, even if we've got great gifts, the one we're serving is greater than we are. And David's understanding this. He says, God, you're my fortress. You're my rock. You're my deliverer. And then he goes, the God of, of my rock, in him will I trust. He is my shield, the horn of my salvation, my high tower, my refuge, my savior. You saved me from violence. So again, he's going, my rock, God, the God of my rock, I will trust in him. I love the word trust. Do we truly trust in God completely? And this is something for us all to consider. And even as you advance in your trust in God, you will find that wherever you far you get, it's going to be just like everything I say about God. We don't know how strong God is, how wise he is, how smart he is, how omnipresent he is, how all omniscient is. We will never know our trust in God until we get to heaven and find out because I think I trust in God and then the next year later I find out I don't, you know, I barely have trusted in God at all. And I pass that, I get past that next trial and I think, okay, I'm trusting in God. And then he shows me I don't trust in him, you know, near as much as I should. David says, I trust him. I trust him. And the real question on trust is, do I have any other plan? Do I have a plan or is it completely on him? Well, you know, I think if God doesn't do this, this is what I'm going to do. No, I'm not trusting in God. You know, my salvation needs to be fully trusting in God. God, I have no other plan. If Jesus isn't the answer, then I'm headed to hell. Or if there's no hell, I'm in, headed to annihilation or whatever it is. If Jesus isn't it and you're not true, then this is where I'm going. And I've met so many people, they have some other plans. Well, you know, if Jesus isn't the way, maybe I'll try this uh, little bit of Buddhism or Hinduism or you know, I'll try a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and whatever works will get me to heaven. No, that's not trust. That wouldn't even, as far as I'm concerned, that's not even putting the trust in the other ones that I consider false. And I've said this before, when people kind of mix and match everything, I have no respect for that. I have more respect for somebody who is a, a full-fledged Buddhist or Hindu or whatever, putting all of their trust in what that religion teaches, even though I believe they're headed to hell because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I still have respect for that person because they are putting their whole hope, just as I am putting my whole hope on Jesus, they're putting their whole hope on their, on their belief. You know, they're wrong. They're going to go to hell according to the scriptures, and the scriptures have not been found to be, be false, so they're wrong. But I still have respect for that type of position. I'm going to try to convince them they're wrong, but we want to be careful with this. And David says, my trust, he is my shield. Who do I hide behind? And this is what, again, the idea of a shield, you hide behind a shield. Okay, you stay behind the shield and the horn of my salvation, the strength of his salvation, his high tower, again, something to hide in and my refuge, <laughs> my savior. 
and you saved me from violence. Do we get a picture of what David is saying here? Hide in God. He is our defender. You know, I, I really have trouble with the mentality that goes around in churches that we're supposed to storm all the enemy and attack the enemy. That's God's job. God's job is to take out the enemy. We are to follow God and he then will take care of us. All we do is hide. Now that doesn't mean we just sit around and do nothing, but it also means it's not on me. It's not on me. You can almost picture the, the comic strip I saw one time of a little boy standing up to this big bully and, his dad, and the little boy's dad standing behind him. They said, come and get me, come and get me. <laughs> and, and the next strip is the bully running away. And the boy's thinking, oh, look, yeah, that guy's finally afraid of me. Then looks back and sees dad. <laughs> you know, this is David's standard. With God, he can do everything. But he's hidden in God. Paul says the same thing in the New Testament to us. We are hidden in Christ. We are clothed in Christ. We are in Christ. Put on the whole armor of God in Ephesians. And if you read that very carefully, we realize that each piece of the armor is Jesus. He is our righteousness. He is the gospel. He is our faith. He is our shield. He is the word. He is the helmet. So Paul is again, just in a very dramatic way saying, put on Christ. We are to be hidden in Christ. And I love this picture. And I've said this before, for us, it's real simple. We hide in Christ, Satan comes knocking on our door, and we just say, okay, God, you go answer the door. Uh, It may or may not be for you, but you're going to go answer the door. You're you're, you're my bodyguard at the moment. You get to to go answer that door, and Satan goes, looks at it, and says, oh, I'm at the wrong house. I'm at the wrong house. Why? Because we let God, we just rest in God. We are crucified in Christ, yet we live in Christ. <laughs> All of our life is in him. I don't understand what he says here about part of three. You saved me from violence. God really saved David from any violence? Well, violence of death is what his biggest violence would have been. He was being chased around, but even if you think about that, he against Saul, and this remember this says this, when he'd been delivered from Saul, Saul never did get to do what he wanted to do to him, so he was delivered from Saul. Now he went to lots of battles, yeah. <laughs> but he didn't, have to, he didn't have to fight Saul, and Saul never, never did get to kill David as he wanted to. I thought it was because he saved from <laughs> <laughs> But the ultimate violence as far as he's concerned it would be death. I'm sure he took some injuries in battles, but uh, over the years, it, from every battle we see, David pretty much didn't seem to take much damage in the battles. You know, there's no place in there where we talk where it talks about him t- taking arrows and being in the hospitals and everything. It seems that he comes out pretty unscathed. So it may be true that God has delivered him in the midst of all these violences. Now I can't say he never got hurt. He was a warrior. He had to have gotten some hurts somewhere. Uh, But you know, there are also, even in recent histories, there are some generals that go out into battles and they make great, uh, great uh, statements of how they come out unscathed. 
God has delivered them from violence and they get to go through their careers with very little, inj little injury or no injury. Uh, if you look at the history of even George Washington, George Washington and most of the battles he came through, he came through unscathed by God's grace in many cases. Uh, the French and Indian War, there, there's a story about his coat being shot up with holes and he didn't take a single hit. And having Indians later on come up and go, we just have to know who you are because we know that you got hit. And yet, you, didn't, you, know, you, never, you never got hit. So it could be possible that God literally protected David from any, in, from any injuries. Yeah. <laughs> but we got all kinds of people that have that, have that statements on them. So, but here, it may be true. And, I, and David seems to say that. Or at least the injuries that he has are so small, he's not taking, taking note of them. Uh, and, and I think, again, his trust has been in God. And it seems his trust has been in God all along. So it could be very much that God says, okay, David, you're protected. You're my leader. You're my man. I want you to be an example of who I am. I'm protecting you supernaturally. So it could very well be that he was protected supernaturally as well from any other harm. Because David should have been taken out many times. You know, many times. Verse 4 says, I will call on the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. This is the big key. I will call on the Lord. One of the problems that we have as Christians is so often we forget to call on the Lord. And we even have this great saying that we, I've tried everything else. I might as well pray. You know, what a stupid statement. That is so unscriptural. You know, God, I'm having a problem. I'm praying. <laughs> Should be our answer. The world looks at that and says, well, you guys just have this crutch. Yes, I have a crutch. I am so happy to have a crutch. I love my crutch. He protects me. He gives me strength. He gives me, gives me power. I love my crutch. What does your crutch do for you? Because everybody has a crutch. Everybody has some crutch. Drugs, alcohol, workaholism, family, fame. Everybody has a crutch. The only problem is most of their crutches cannot support them. Ultimately, they get to the end of their, end of their rope and they find out that their crutch doesn't support. Alcohol and drugs takes you down to, you know, down to, the, to the gutter. Workaholism steals everything from you. You may have, you may have the respect of your, of your co-workers, maybe, if you haven't destroyed them with your workaholism. You lose your family, you lose your, your, you know, your, your, your spouse, you know, and you get to the end and you're, you're a very lonely person and realize that you've traded everything for nothing. You get to have fame and then you start wondering, do people like me or they just like who they think I am? You know, and this is the problem. All these other crutches lead to nothing. You know, so if God's my crutch, thank you, I love it. He's given me great blessings. He gives me great, great strength. He gives me great uh, honor. And I will, I will use God as my crutch for the rest of my life. You know, it's a wonderful place to be, and this is what's going on. David says, when I'm in trouble, I call God. Now, he hasn't done it perfectly all of his life either. Remember when he sinned with Bathsheba? We know that there's at least a year to two years that he is not following God, not calling God. 
But uh, for the most part, we see David going to God. God, shall I go into this battle? God, should I engage this battle? Should I do this? God, should I run, you know, should I go here? Should I go there? And God is always there talking with David and directing him. God will meet us and deliver us. And that is the great news. Even when we mess everything up and deserve nothing but trouble from God, when we call out to God, he may say about time, but he's going to step in and help. He will take our consequences of our sins, and there are consequences for our sins, and when we call out to them, he may not take away the consequences, but he will give us the strength to endure those consequences. He will give us some blessing within those consequences and guide us through them. And that's the good news for God. He is our ultimate deliverer, and he will deliver from enemies. And I love it. I love that he is always there. You know, as the song says, always there, hearing every prayer. You know, he is ready to respond. He is waiting to be called upon. Because one thing he knows is he knows that we are just a bunch of weak human beings that are going to, going to fail without him. And he is just waiting. And you know, it's so fun to think of. He's just waiting there to asking, waiting to be asked. He's not going to come in and try to make us accept his help. He's just waiting. And as soon as we are ready to ask him to help, he's ready to come in. Whether it's at the beginning, before I've had all the problems, in the middle, after I've tried to do, or at the end, after I'm a bloody, pulpy mess, <laughs> saying, God, I need you. He's ready to step in then. You know, and David understands this. I will call on the Lord who is worthy to be praised. I love that. He is worthy to be praised. You know, and he... And, and so shall I be saved from my enemies. God will save. God is standing there ready. And I love the idea that God is worthy to be praised. Our God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that is something that we can really grab hold of. He was David's savior in the midst of everything. He was... Uh, Abraham's savior in the midst of everything he went through. He was Noah's savior through the midst of everything he went through. He was Moses' savior, Joshua's savior. Pick any of the great leader, you know, people, Peter, James, John, you know, all the ones through history, you know, uh, Origen, uh, Augustine, you know, all the various great disciples that have followed him. He's always been there for each one of them, worthy of praise. He is worthy of our praise. And he's ready to lift us up and give us great blessings. You know, one of the things that I encourage when we read these biographies is to watch how these people's lives started out very poorly in most cases, sometimes for many years. And then they get saved and God uses them. God uses them and makes something great out of them. You know, and it takes time. You know, and I love these various characters that we read about. You know, and say, God, how did you use them? 
how did you how did you get them where they were so special? Well, they just didn't start one day and say, "Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna give everything I have to God." God had to prove to them that He was capable of handling it. He had to show them that He was able to do it. You read about some of these missionaries. Uh, I can't remember the name of the woman in in China that was teaching that her God was powerful. So the so she was put in some very interesting places by the by the ruler of the providence, uh, province where she was. Your God's so strong, you go, you go deal with these people. You know, and one time she was sent into the prison to, to quell a riot. To quell a riot. No weapons. The guards wouldn't even go in with her because they were afraid. And they said, well, if your God's so powerful, he'll protect you. You go into this riot and stop it. And, sure, and God stopped it just to prove that he could. You know, what can God do? Anything. How much faith do we need for it to happen? Mustard seed? If you have a seed, faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea. I've never tried to move a mountain. I've had no reason to move a mountain, but you know, I believe that God could do it if I needed it. If I needed a mountain moved, he'd move it. What can God do? Where's our faith lie? Are we willing to ask God for big things? Or are we just sitting back and saying, oh, well, you know, we'll see what happens. You know, God, if maybe you might possibly think about doing something for me. <laughs> you know, and unfortunately, a lot of us pray in those kind of prayers. And I don't want to see us go too far the other direction because I've seen people demand of God stuff. I'm not going to go demand of God anything. But God, I expect some big things. I don't know what God's going to do for our church. But I expect that he's going to do some big things. I expect to see some salvations out of all these people that we've been praying for. And see what God is going to do. And see a revival come out of this little town. Maybe the revival will take over all of the county. Who knows how far it could go. But I'm really expecting that God is going to do something, you know, we're praying for 150-some names on it. The town's only got 300 people in it. You know, what kind of revival could we get? Now, I know not all, those, not all those people live in this town, but a number of them do. You know, let's say it's only 100 of them or 75 of them. That's still you know, a quarter of the town that could get saved by our prayers. What has God got in store for us? kind of excited to see what he's going to do. Do we have enough faith as we pray for them to do a revival? How far would this revival go? Even if it was just chloride, wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? You know, the town in Scotland where the two old ladies were praying for revival and their entire town got saved because they started praying and then an evangelist got saved out of that group and went out other places and, got, and led people to Christ. What can happen if God makes a revival in this little town? If nothing else, this town goes to heaven. But who would God raise up from this town to do something great for him? We never know. We never know the lives that we touch and who, who's, what's going to happen. You know, we look at the long line that led to Billy Graham that goes all the way back to D.L. Moody with several evangelists in it, and a couple of people that just did their job of, of sharing the gospel. And you know, what can happen?
Who knows? But do we have the faith to really pray for revival to hit and then watch and see? I'm looking forward to what God's going to do, and I don't know what it is. But you know, one of the things about this is if there's revival that starts in this town, each one of us that have been in this church for a while will have a piece of it, not just because of our praying, but we get to be the ones that help disciple these people and train, and train them to go for, to walk with God because you're already ahead of them because you've been spending the years here being taught. And then you get to teach those people and maybe somebody will come and be the, the one that really does something big. I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to what God is going to do here and how he's going to make something happen. Because this town has had a lot of investment over the years from this little church. And I've not read anything about this church having a great big revival impact, but this church has planted churches all over the place. It's planted churches in Kingman. It's planted churches in Dolan. It's been responsible for several of the churches in the River Valley Association being existent. And from what I've been told by Roger, the churches in the Vegas area, the Baptist churches in their Vegas area, go to Bullhead City, or not Bullhead, Boulder City, which then is tracked back to here somehow way back in the past. So what impact has this church had in this area? Quite a bit. I want to see it have another big, big impact. I want to see it have a revival. I want to see us plant other churches. I'd love to see this church plant other churches again you know, and start other churches and help them get started. Whether they're, they're in this area or around the world, I want to see us have an impact on the world and see what God is going to do. And it'll be an exciting place because I don't want to live in the past. Those, are, those other events are gone. I want to know, God, what are you going to do today? How is this church moving forward today? What are you going to do for us? Because we're standing strong, and yes, we're, a, we're in a town that's never going to be big. You know, this town is never going to be big again. But you know, God can still use this church, and he is using this church. We're reaching the world. We've got their internet ministry going out, reaching thousands of people every, every month. And who knows what God is doing with those. We are not going to know what's going on on that until we get to heaven and see what God is using for the internet ministry. Unless somebody sends us some emails somewhere along the line. But as it stands right now, I don't expect to hear from anybody until heaven. And God says, this is what happened. Who knows what's happening? I'm looking forward to what God is doing. But our job, pray. Our job is to have faith. Our job is to know that God is God and he's going to do something. All right, Lord, we just thank you for this day. We ask you to go with us today. Bless us special. Lord, give us great time tomorrow as we prepare for Thanksgiving and the events going on. And we just ask you to bless tonight and the rest of this week. In Jesus' name, amen.